2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a weekly series of podcasts about happiness and work culture. Hi, welcome to Eat, Sleep, Work Repeat. This is our sixth episode. If you remember a few episodes ago, on the very first one, I had Sue Todd in. She mentioned Paul Dolan. Today's interview is, I'm actually going to interview Paul Dolan and talk to him about his work in the the field of behavioural economics. And joining me in the studio to discuss that interview is today's guest, John Owen. You run the decision practice, is that right, John?
0: Uh, That's right, yeah. So it's a behavioural management consultancy that focuses on helping businesses
2: to build and protect their culture. So when you were describing it to me, you sort of fascinated because it's an intersection of behavioural economics, which has been the, the buzz trend of the last decade, really, you know, the Daniel Kahneman style, understanding that people aren't necessarily rational, but it's bringing that to a work environment?
0: Yeah, it's it's bringing the notion that what behavioural science enables us to do is understand people, understand why we why we do the things we do, essentially. That includes how, therefore, to change that behaviour, it includes how to motivate that behaviour, and how to, therefore, build a, a, a culture around the sort of behaviour you want in a business. And I think that um, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that culture is is a vital component in building a successful business.
2: And how did you get into that? So you, what were you doing previously? I've been a marketing strategist for most of my
0: career. Right company called Dare. I was there for 12 years which was a creative agency. Being a digital specialist anymore was not a particularly easy place to be in terms of building something that was very successful and grew very fast but then also dealing with a slightly more challenging situation where we were in a marketplace suddenly that had changed completely and um, we had to sort of
2: manage decline and manage change. To go from that to then work in a Setting up your own culture business seems like a, a strange hop and a skip. Yeah, well, I've done some strange hops and skips before,
0: I suppose, leaping from journalism into into marketing. But um, the thing that really I became very clear about was that you can control very few things in business. But one of the things you can control is your culture. And actually, one of the things that saw us through in in some of the more difficult times was the very strong culture that we right. had. By being able to define what your cultural values are and, and overtly call them out and overtly understand and have everybody understand what behaviour supports those values.
2: A couple of episodes ago I had Patty McCord on who was responsible for the Netflix culture and and their philosophy was they write, they wrote down their culture and the culture was sort of like the Ten Commandments. It was always passed down not in people's heads on um, piece of paper so if they felt like something wasn't articulated correct on the paper they'd change it because that was the their culture was passed to everyone it's interesting isn't it? because for most companies their culture is this sort of ethereal thing that you can't quite touch it's like the it's it's an intangible asset yeah. and netflix approach was very much write it down otherwise it doesn't exist
0: yes listen i think a lot of business leaders will spend a lot of time writing down their strategy and they'll, they'll take their culture for granted. And and I think that's a real mistake. I mean, Netflix has a very strong culture. Um, Brian Brian Chesky at Airbnb says there's no such thing as a good culture or a bad culture. There are only strong and weak cultures, which I think is quite an insightful comment because you can look at Netflix and say it's it's good or it's bad. That's a value judgment. But what you can't dispute is that it's strong. Yeah. And um, I know that that's what he's, he's built as well, Airbnb, and, and culture for them is a... Is a, is a hugely important thing. And he said, And he says, you know, in 100 years' time, we might be doing anything. What we certainly won't be is be a website for, for property exchanges. But what hopefully will endure is our culture. It's kind of all we've got.
2: So let's play the interview and we'll come back and chat. This week, I went to interview Paul Dolan. Paul Dolan is an incredibly charismatic lecturer at the London School of Economics. And I think, John, you actually studied under him, is that correct? Uh, if you're ready to be a groupie for academics, then the fact that Paul hangs around with Nobel prize-winning Daniel Kahneman, you can't help but be impressed. Uh, add to that the fact he's a buff designer, glasses-wearing bodybuilder, and he's one of those people who you know he's gonna be satisfying to spend time with. So uh, it was immensely generous that he gave me time to come along and talk to him and ask him about his work. So Let's hear from Paul. Talking about happiness and and work culture and your book, probably the biggest insight for me from from Happiness by Design was the discussion that you said that the production process for happiness and that is your allocation of time or your allocation of attention actually. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinatingly reductive, it's so simple that you can't help but think yeah okay I get that, actually that makes a lot of sense but how would you apply that to the world of work? Most of our attention, most of our time at work seems to be sort of Stolen from us or against our will—is—is is that fair?
3: Yeah. So I mean, everything is the allocation of attention. As you say it's the scarcest resource there is for us because um, when we pay attention to one thing, we're necessarily not paying attention to something else. And so the the sort of very obvious insight would be: if you want to be happier at work or anywhere else, is to pay attention to things that make you feel good and to not to things that make you feel bad. Given that that's obvious, how do you do it? Some of the insights are again obvious but overlooked. I think the biggest challenge to taking happiness research seriously maybe much of the other research evidence seriously is not that the the insights themselves are surprising although some are on occasion it's the fact that they're not more widely adopted for example you know we know that getting distracted is bad for us in a whole host of ways it drains attention all resources we we uh, flip between different activities when this 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 idea that people multitask is absolute nonsense you can't multitask you can just single task very quickly and so your brain flits between different activities and when you do that you're tiring yourself out so you you're less efficient and less happy yet we're constantly distracted in our workplaces most people a lot of people will have email pop-ups that come up you know so they're engaged in activity bang there comes an email or oh, better better check that out or a facebook update or a twitter feed or whatever it is we kind of don't do the things that are obvious that are obvious uh which is to ensure that we are able to pay attention to one thing at a time, and then to take organized breaks. So taking breaks is, is really helpful to us, right? If you um, are thinking about something challenging, you might not solve the problem by thinking about it harder, but you might if you go away and allow your brain to think about other things and come back to it. So taking breaks are good. We can think about ways in which we should organize our work days to take breaks, but not to be distracted.
2: That notion that's so long gone now, you know the the notion of work when I used to watch TV as as a kid, you'd see someone had a tea break, and it's yeah. almost returning to that a bit. It was yeah. saying that you know actually here's the bit where you're going to be in flow, you're going to be sort of yep. not not distracted,
3: then go and have uh, a reward there, and then come back to it. And that's and that's yeah the old you know and but I mean email in particular in workplaces. I mean people, I mean some people are checking their Facebook, but assuming that they're not the biggest work um, distraction is email and. We get floods of them they 're not making us any more productive yeah. so having organized times where you you know check emails in the morning in the afternoon or evening whatever how how many times you're going to do that, probably not too often and deal with them all and sort them all and then get back to productive tasks. The problem is that people have expectations of you to reply quickly. I get it with you know, journalists, for example, and, and notoriously you know, they sort of phone you 10 minutes after they've sent you an email and said, have you seen my email? It's like, why, where, have we got this, where have we got this expectation that we should be available <laughs> all the time for people? And that's kind of what we need to sort of rein in a bit, I think, is sort of managing those expectations of us and of ourselves.
2: It feels so counter. It's, it's like you know trying to resist this tsunami of change.
3: Yeah, it is. We've got. It's a bit like um, our addiction to to the internet, to our smartphones. It's kind of like almost someone's put a, a crack dealer on every street corner, or, or opened a pub on every street corner, and they're always open. You know, you, you just you're not. Gonna, or, or actually, you're in the pub all the time, and you so you're going to buy a pint. I mean, it, you know, it's going to it's going to happen, even if you don't want to drink. So it's kind of having some control for organisations as much for, more more so than for individuals. Actually, because it's very hard for us to to manage it ourselves. It's for organisations and, and institutions to design environments that enable people to pay attention properly.
2: Okay, that's interesting. Then, so what you sort of create, you say here, our culture is you know. <clears throat> There's an the expectation you'll get back in this amount of time, or yeah,
3: or you won't be. I mean, we're not going to, we're not. Get, no one's. Got, I think IBM have done it. Uh, used to do it. I don't know if they still do. No email Fridays. So there's no expectation on it on anyone's part that they will send or receive an email on a Friday. You can make that Friday and Monday. Yeah. Um, you know, if people want to go and talk to one another within the corporation, they have to go and talk to the person or pick up a phone or whatever it is, which was our old school way of communicating. Yeah. It's. It's nicer, actually, because it's more socially engaging, but it's also more efficient because you can get something resolved quite quickly rather than bouncing emails back and forth. I can
2: definitely see it working if you've got sort of tribal business where these 50 to 100 people in a block, and so you can wander over and chat to Gavin, and you can't come yeah. to chat to Kate. If you if you've sort of passed the size where there's the yeah. Guildford office, there's the the Woking office, yeah. uh, that yeah. becomes more difficult, doesn't well, it? Well, you pick up the phone, don't you? Right.
3: It's really interesting. I mean, a, a couple of instances with uh, PhD students, obviously... Uh, you know, a couple of decades younger than me. And I've said, you know, give so-and-so a call because, you know, something's urgent, we want an answer on it. And I've asked them, had have you called them? And they said, yeah, and I, was, I sent an email and I'm waiting for them to get back to me about when to talk to me. It's like, what, like, what, we're sending emails to arrange phone calls.
2: I remember, though, I once did a thing <laughs> where we, we found that, you know, a team I was working with had a low profile. And so we said, right, what we're going to do, we're always going to phone. These people were trying to get a hold of, them. we're always going to phone them. And I found that when we next did the next survey of how happy I have. Customers, the people we're dealing with, they're actually more unhappy. And one of the one well, of the One of yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the was, why does Simon keep? Fucking <laughs> yeah, well,
3: <laughs> there is. I'm not saying that we we call everybody all the time. Yeah, I mean there need to be limits to that, of course. But and of course, the phone call is going to be a, an interruption for the person receiving it. But yeah. but on occasion, it's more efficient. But more generally, uh, leaving leaving aside emails or phone calls, is to have dedicated time that's put aside to dealing with administrative duties if you like and then and then time also dedicated to more productive activities that are essentially the day job and when
2: it was going through your book you you know like when you sort of you've been good and you you write little notes you scribble on things and the things that i really sort of put a square around and wrote in the front twice was that one of the surest ways to be happier is to spend more time with happy people yeah and so i was was fascinated with that one
3: well it's obvious that um it's kind of obvious isn't it that if you're going to you're more likely to do something or feel something if you're surrounded by people who are also doing and feeling those things too because we're social animals and we take our cues from people around us. Everything's contagious in some sense and so is misery and happiness. Misery particularly loves company, right? So you know, if you're going to be around miserable people, you're more likely to be sucked down yourself. But So yes, of course, surround yourself with people that essentially you enjoy spending time with. Obvious but overlooked. So most people, a lot of people will engage in careers and strategies within their careers that involve them spending time with people that they don't actually like that much because they think that's going to be in their interest to do that for career advancement reasons or whatever. And all the while they're doing that, they're giving up time that they could otherwise be spending with people that they like. So if you're going to do that, you better be pretty damn sure that those strategies are going to pay off in the long term such that the long-term benefits that come from spending time with people that you do eventually like being with are worth the cost of spending time with people that you don't like now. One of the great, I think one of the great advantages for me, I mean, of course I have colleagues that I can't avoid on occasion but all of my research activities have been ones that I've chosen to collaborate with people that I like working with and it's a it's a very simple strategy to have and it's really interesting when students come and see me and they ask me about you know how they can advance their careers in whatever ways they're interested in doing it and I'm I look very uh, they're they're never very satisfied with my answer which is I don't really have a strategy other than just uh, enjoy what you're doing whilst you're doing it and that will give you the feedback uh, about whether to continue it or not. But I think we get lost in these narratives about where we where we ought to be and what we ought to be doing.
2: So, so that feeling, you walk away from somewhere and you go, I really like those people, that's that's probably it's going to result in greater happiness for you if a fair representation.
3: Right? Yeah, I mean, we're hugely affected by our social interactions. Um, even, even introverts, um, you know, they like being around other people, they just also like time away for themselves to recharge. Yeah, time spent with people that you, that you like. If you say to someone, what makes you happy? That would be a very obvious thing to say. it's an overlooked thing for example people will commute longer distances to and from work in order to earn more money to take jobs that they think in some sense might be better but all the while they're doing that and they're on the train or they're you know driving or whatever it is they're doing they're they're not spending time with people that they like being with so
2: there's there's two parts i want to draw on that so the first one you say you said in your book that uh, a long commute correlates especially with women in lower psychological yeah. welfare. So like yeah. you're basically a long commute creates misery, but especially creates misery for, for women. Big cities, are they inevitably... Maybe a medium-sized city is the happiest place. Yeah, well, there's two
3: things in there. One is the gender difference. Most, most of the days we, we looked at the gender differences in that paper that you're referring to, and, and most data that most um, studies don't look at gender. They, they just look at average effects. Um, actually, we didn't find very much of an effect on commuting at all for men, except men that had... I think, you know, maybe a, maybe a young family or something. And that's really suggestive of, and, and it didn't have an effect on single women, but it did on all other women right. categories, like, you know, married and with, and with kids, which is highly suggestive of, of the what happens to you when you get home bit after the commute, right? So women still pick up most of the tab of housework. So she commutes and goes home and washes the dishes. He commutes and goes home and the dishes have been washed. Um, so, I think that that partly explains the difference yeah. in commuting. Um, but generally, capital cities. To your, sec- to your second question point, um, London is miserable in comparison to the rest of the UK, and capital cities are miserable in comparison to other right. uh, cities and towns in those nations. Uh, there is a lot of reasons for that. Commuting is one. The hard work. London is a, is, a, is a hard work city, right? I mean, getting anywhere that should take a very short while can take a long while. Uh, that's quite stressful. Um, and uh, there's also, I think there's a lot of other things. There's um, relativities. I mean, you notice. So I worked at um, I've worked at universities uh, in, in a few places, uh, mostly in the north of England in my early academic life. Yeah, of course there is there are income inequalities in Sheffield and Newcastle and Leeds and places that I've lived. But they weren't weren't as obvious as they are in London, right? I mean, I'm I'm a pretty wealthy guy, but I feel poor in, when I'm walking around bits of London. Yeah, right. Didn't didn't feel that in other places. Where, where it's less visible and noticeable. So I think there's lots of reasons why.
2: And relative wealth, actually, is a, is a creator of <coughs> unhappiness, isn't it? If, if someone earns... Oh,
3: relative, yeah. I mean, relative effects are every bit as important as absolute ones. If I got a, a 1% pay rise from the LSE and found out that everyone else got 5%, um, I mean, of course, I'm absolutely better off, but I'm relatively much worse off, and that effect would, be, would make me feel less happy than the pay rise itself.
2: The thing in your work that you really talk about is you t- talk about For happiness, you need a balance of pleasure, this sort of hedonism, and purpose. Sort of balancing those two things. And someone said to me, um, someone contacted me, and he said, uh, so how does that work? How does that affect someone who's self-employed? How does, Mm. you know, how do you... And Mm. purpose, what really is purpose? Is purpose... A lot of companies create a purpose, and sometimes they feel a bit saccharine. You know, what what would you boil down to a, a really good example of purpose
3: yeah so first of all I think it's important to be clear what I mean by that because the philosophical literature for two and a half thousand years is in some senses talked about purpose and meaning and um, sort of higher order objectives in some sense but that's always been in the in 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 the narrative in an evaluation like my life has meaning um, and you know this company has a purpose or whatever it is right I'm, t- I'm talking about it in a much more experiential sense. As we, as we live and breathe our lives, day-to-day, moment-to-moment, the things we do feel purposeful. Right? So um, you know, not having a job as a professor at the LSE, that's very purposeful. That doesn't really mean anything unless it shows up in day-to-day experiences. So I do things in my life and in my day at work that feel like they're worthwhile. Those activities that I engage in are purposeful. So it's, it's much more experiential than any of the literature has previously discussed in terms of... Because I'm not a big fan of narratives and stories. Right, okay. we And We can construct anything to cohere. Yeah. And the human condition is very good at making things cohere. So, so, so this, is, this is located in the experiences of our lives. And so purpose mm. doesn't actually have to come from work. I mean, you can get purpose from uh, children, the garden, purpose from engaging in sports or... Anything that anything that you feel like is you know is kind of meaningful and worthwhile. Just for most of us, since we spend a lot of time at work anyway, um, our jobs are, are where we're going to get a lot of the purpose, insofar as we get any. So right. I think it's important that we feel like you know. There's nothing worse than doing anything in work or elsewhere that feels like it's a waste of time. And people mispredict that, right? They think you know I'll, I'll earn more money and that that will compensate for the fact that this job doesn't feel like it's worth it. But actually. Again, day to day, moment to moment, you're going to feel like it's pointless, and it's yeah. not going to be very good, even if you're taking home a high wage. I think it's important. It's in those activities that you engage in in work that, that you have that there's a point to them. That it feels like they're worthwhile. Yeah. So that's that's what we're trying to um, develop measures. We've we've got an app coming out that will enable people to monitor uh, pleasure and purpose in their daily experiences.
2: Oh God, how does that work?
3: Uh, w- literally that. I mean, you report. Whether things are feeling like they're pleasurable or purposeful as you engage in them, and also you, there's an opportunity to construct a diary essentially that will allow you to see how you use your time.
2: What well, so you could basically say, actually, I'm happier than I it was a year ago. Based if on... you had last year's data, right, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. But you can see, I think, in work, in work, you can see what things you do that feel like they're worth it, um, and they might not always be the things that you would predict or you would construct as narratives around those things, that are that are purposeful
2: what's been the impact of your work on people
3: um of course you get you get selection bias of people generally i mean you do get a few people that don't like you or like what you have to say so you get a, get a few of those but by and large people have, have been hugely positive and i think the um the evaluation experience distinction story that i tell about my friend at media land you know having a who complains about her job when we go for dinner every bit of at her day to day experiences at working at media land were miserable, but yet at the end of the dinner she says she loves working there that 's really resonated with people
2: because you said in that story, so you said that you know this, this woman sort of gave her a, a litany of things that she hated, yeah. but then she stayed in her job. but you said in your book that she ended up changing her no, job no she did
3: quit her job I've, I feel very proud of my you know bit of life coaching or therapy or whatever it is has worked well. she changed her job and she's did it have happier. A happy happy she happier now? but you know it was it was one of those it 's a lot of people who are in relationships for example it 's not just in jobs where they they tell a story about the ideal person or the ideal job and, and uh they pay less attention to whether that ideal manifests itself in feeling happy day to day moment to moment. Sometimes they cohere, but oftentimes they don't. And so i try- what I what I'm what people are recognising in insofar as you ask about the, the feedback and how people have changed is to is to pay more attention to to how things feel in a pleasure and purpose sense as they engage in the activities and, and to pay less attention to the stories they tell about the things that they think should make them happy. Yeah, I
2: think that's the overall lesson of the book, isn't it? That Effectively, your happiness is largely determined by you.
3: Yeah, but by what you do. Yeah. And, to finish where we started, what you pay attention to.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
2: Great, so that was a fascinating character. What was it like to study under him? Oh, yeah, he's amazing. He's, I mean, as you could
0: tell, you know, he's, he's very distinctive, isn't he? He's got a distinctive personal brand. Yes. Yeah. Any marketer will tell you that's, that's,
1: a, <laughs> that's a very fine thing to have.
2: But such, such a, an expert in his field. It, I guess the big thing that Paul says is he says that happiness is a direct output of the decision, which is what we pay attention to. Yeah, so
0: this notion of, of it, it really matters what you pay attention to. Uh, is kind of the main theme of his book. Um, I think it's probably you know, the major contribution that he's made with that book is to, is to bring that notion forward and, and in such, in such as a readable um, fashion. It's a fairly, as he says himself, it's kind of obvious but overlooked, mm. um, it, this thought that actually what you pay attention to really, really matters. But we, we, we don't do that. everyday. We don't think about what we're paying attention to. We don't consciously put our attention against different things necessarily. So we will find ourselves, I know I will, you know, on the the commute, suddenly find yourself thinking about a really difficult conversation you had a couple of days ago with a client that's obviously been bugging you. and, and, And suddenly it's in your head, you haven't planned for it to be, there.
2: Because I, I thought it was spot on. It's the it's the part of the book. Uh, you underline it four times, and then you scribble it in the front of the book. It's such a, a revelation. But not to cross the streams, but it seems sort of anti-therapy bit, doesn't it? I mean, I, I don't know if that's going too far off topic, but where therapy is something traumatic or bad happens to you, and you think about it and talk about it, and you process it mm. to such an extent it's spent. And he's basically saying... Don't think about bad things. Think about good things. Spend your time, dedicate your time to good things.
0: He is. That's he's saying. That's what drives happiness, isn't it? He? And he's saying, surround yourself with good people or people that you enjoy spending time with. But I think I think the lessons can be um, are about more than just happiness. From, yeah. From that, I think I think what you pay attention to, um, I think it's a really really strong lesson about so much in life. You know, um, because yes, some stuff you might be thinking about which makes you unhappy. Um, but some stuff you might be thinking about which is utterly irrelevant and you shouldn't be thinking about it all because you've got a really important meeting in half an hour that you should be thinking about instead or, you know, or whatever it may be. But, but just, make, just paying more attention to your own thought processes is something that everyone could benefit from.
2: I don't know whether it feels like that idea then if it had come about 30 years ago would have been incredibly helpful but it seems like such a disconnection from the world we're living now so you know the, the notion of continuous partial attention that we're paying slight attention to 50 things yeah. at any point and you know we're checking our messages and then we're checking something else and we're we're using our laptops while we're watching TV and no one's paying full attention to anything and he basically says that's a road to unhappiness that is a way to end up unhappy yeah and it's a bit like Great, but how can I deal with modern right. life? Yeah. And his point that he makes in that chat there, where he says, you've got to not do email. It feels like it's such a leap from where we are today. I just wonder if it's ever going to be realistic. Yeah, I think I think that is always the challenge, isn't
0: it? You get, um, you know, I guess what academics do is they present us with challenges. They're not necessarily the best place in the world to, to, to provide the solutions, and certainly my, my belief in, in, in workplace culture being such a strong and important thing is that, is that there aren't really any off-the-shelf solutions. Mm. You've got to find solutions within the context of your own culture and your own personality as an individual as well. But, you know, you take the truths from, from, from scientific research and, and, and it is a truth to say that, you know, he says you're, not, you know, you're, you're at your happiest when you're paying full attention to something. Um, and multitasking is a myth. And, you know, he's right on both counts. And multitasking is, a, is, a, is an incredibly depleting experience. So if we're, as we all are, in a, in a, in a work environment now, you know, working harder uh, to tighter deadlines, you know, with fewer resources, that seems, that seems to be the way of things. Right? Yeah. Um, how on earth can you be resilient in the face of that? And energy management is a huge uh, step forward, I think, beyond distinct, distinct from time management. Um, It's an area I'm really fascinated by. It's an area I did my research in underpool at the LSE. Um, Energy management being the ability to understand what saps your energy and and take measures to control that and and to generate energy recovery.
2: So on the, on the very subject of that, so Richard Reeves, who we had on a, a few episodes ago, I saw him speak, and he actually didn't say in, in the interview that I did with him. But he said, it's not about time management that used to be like the old model of these things, or it's not a lot about work-life balance. People are very comfortable doing a bit of work in the evening. It, it makes their life more satisfying or they're happier thinking about a product problem they've got while they're out for a cycle ride on sunday so they're happy to to mix work and and uh, leisure when it's on their terms but richard reeve said it's all about energy management it's about ensuring that you never have that sense of running on empty and so go on as someone who studied it
0: what's the solution to that john well Again, it's, it's quite personal,
2: yeah. right?
0: And, and the, but, time, but if, if time management, simply put, time, if time management is about organising the tasks in your day so that, to Paul's point, you can pay full attention to each task in turn and not constantly be distracted and try and do multiple things at once, that's, that's really at the you know, the essence of time management. And that's a, that's a really, I wouldn't decry that. That's a really, really important thing. Um, but um, what energy management will do is uh, we teach you that occasionally you should stop paying attention to any of that stuff, and actually just pay attention to yourself. Just just pay attention to something that either that you enjoy, um, or something that's going to relax you, so that you can regenerate your energy, so that you can be energized for for what for what lies next. And that that could be as little as you know just a couple of minutes, looking out the window. At a,
2: Right. So that's sort of of what Paul was saying, like the tea break philosophy, that there's some ancient wisdom in the idea that people would take a pause from anything.
0: Yeah, um, we don't
2: do it enough. That's the the
0: fact of the matter. And again, it's down to workplace cultures not supporting it um, in the main. Um, so once upon a time, the tea break was an institutionalized thing, right? You know, you'd probably go on strike if you didn't get (laughs) one. But today, you know, people do still take a break to make a cup of tea, but literally that's all they'll do. They'll go to the, you know, the kitchen probably and make a cup of tea, maybe have a little chat to someone while they're doing it and then go back to their desk. They won't go and sit for five, 10 minutes and, you know, read a magazine or contemplate the, the world or just have, or just have a chat. It doesn't tend to happen. And while that's not for everybody, that sort of break can, can be can be very positive for, for energy levels.
2: So someone catching a quick look at the gossip on the sidebar of shame, actually, like, taking a look at that could be a good thing for their productivity? There. Yeah, I mean,
0: obviously, you've got to – re- discipline is required. So I think, I think the danger with energy management, even as I'm articulating it now, is it could sound like a shirker's charter because basically it's saying taking breaks is good for you. But obviously, if you take loads of breaks – all the time and that's that's not so good for productivity but taking taking you know disciplining yourself to take small breaks and understanding what within those breaks what activities within those breaks is going to help you relax or actually is going to energize you and then being disciplined enough to St- you know, end the break and go back to your work, that is something that not only makes you happier, but does, at um, the evidence would suggest, does drive productivity. Right,
2: OK. So I just wonder how you could turn that into into reality. So Because it, the one thing that you might say about Paul's work when you listen to it, is that he's got a slightly unrealistic, sort of idealised version of what work might be like. That You basically say, I'm going to do these compartments. And most people would say, well, we'll tell that to my boss when he comes along and he does this, or tell that to my boss when I get dragged into a three-hour planning meeting. And so if he has an idealised version of work, then... Practically, how do you do those breaks? Do you do it like school? There's a bell goes and everyone, <laughs> everyone goes and messes around on the roof for 20 um, minutes? Definitely not. But
0: back to what I talked about a little bit earlier is, is um, autonomy is, is, is a very, very important factor. Right. Uh, particularly when it comes to people who use their brain to work. So, you know, if you're, if you're on a factory floor, then a bell going and having a break, you know, for a, certain, you know, a shift being over, that works. But if you're in charge of your own workload, which most, you know, knowledge workers, so-called, you know, are people who are basically white-collar workers, one of a better way of looking at it, you if you start to, you know, institute breaks at certain times, you'll be interrupting a train of thought. You'll be right. preventing them from hitting a deadline that, that that a particular client has demanded of them. There's all sorts of reasons why you wouldn't do that. But creating a culture where breaks are not only permitted but encouraged, designing an environment, you know. Admittedly, this is now an incurring cost, but designing an environment where you can, actually, there's, a, there's, a, there's an area where you can go for breaks. There's also an area where you can go for focused work. There's an area for collaboration. You know, work environments are very, very important in, in promoting and generating these sorts of things.
2: So a lot of this sort of leads to, um, I remember when I was at a job, a long time ago, and I used to enjoy, as my sort of interruption to what was going on, going to chat to some of the journalists over the other side and reading the gossip pages of The Sun. And, you know, it was like a great distraction. They, they used to have newspapers delivered there. It was a, a good punctuation to my day until someone said to me, have you got nothing to do? And I, f- I never did it again. I never went over. Sometimes I'd sneak a look at their Their newspapers, but without anyone observing me, and almost what you're saying is that a company, if they wanted to stimulate this, whether it's like a a group that meets that discusses last night's Westworld or EastEnders or TV show of choice, that's actually not a bad thing. Yeah, I
0: think I think you know in the the instance that you've just described, you know, I would think if you had a strong enough culture that that that, that, had carved out. The reason why breaks are good for you—you'd simply be able to respond to that person. I'm on a break, right? And that should be enough. But yeah, I, I mean, allowing people the opportunity, and and, and again, encouraging uh, that they do, that they that they do Com- talking about common interests. You know, little, little groups, however big or small, that meets meet to talk about common interests. Yeah, that's a that's a great thing. I mean, it's obviously great because it bonds people in different ways, uh, which is a, which is important to team cohesion but it also provides a break talking about stuff you're passionate about that isn't work you know thinking back to that, that thing that paul said about paying attention to something makes you happy if you can be if you enjoy something enough that you will be absorbed your attention will be absorbed when
2: you when you're talking about it or you listen to other people talking about it that, that provides you with a break And so to square the the two things we talked about there, so writing that down, writing down that breaks are good. Mm -hmm. So like, it's clear that everyone, our culture is breaks are good. So consequently, I would have been able to say to the, the man who chased me away from that day's newspapers, I'd have been able to point him to the rule breaks are good. Exactly. We did a
0: survey for, for the research I did at LSE, and, and I was quite surprised that only 10% of people actively exercise on a regular basis during the work the, during the working day, you know, and, and even fewer than that just go for a walk around the block, which, you know, just going for a walk around the block is, is, a, is, a, is a fairly, you know, it's, it's quite easy to do, it's, mm. it, You know, and actually that's better than reading a newspaper in yeah. the canteen, because no one's actually going to come and tell you what the hell you're doing, because you're, you're out of the building. Um, but, but so few people do that. Because we do have this sort of addiction to being at our desk, being seen, uh, and being seen to work.
2: And So talk me through your business, the decision practice. So what do you do? How do you help companies? So um, I guess first and foremost, what I do with companies is
0: I help them identify what their culture is. When, when, when companies talk about their values, they will be, in my experience, values that you know, the CEO decided they should have. And I don't think that works. That's, they just go on a plaque. You know, on the side of the on the wall somewhere, and no one really observes them or really, or understands them. So every business has a culture. So I work with businesses to do surveys and interviews and obs- observations and and understand. Okay, so these are, this, this is how people are. This is the, and this is what people value within your business, and therefore these are the values of your business. And obviously, that's trying to um, identify the positive stuff because there's nearly always you know, there will be positive stuff to to, to build upon. Um, but at the same time, you know, what we might do is also identify behaviours that, that um, actually are breaking those values. So once you've agreed that those are the values and that they actually do marry with the, um, the vision of the, of, the, of, the, of the founders, if you like, or of the, of the leaders of the business, it's then a case of saying, well, OK, let's go, let's go back down into, to, up to the ground level and let's identify what, those, what sort of behaviours we really want to see uh, and again, involving people in identifying that, so that they can police their own values, so that no one ever comes up to you and says, "What the hell are you doing?" You know, have you got no word to do because they know that uh, energy management is one of our is one of our values, and 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 it's it's a it's a dynamic process, but it has to be both sort of endorsed and led from the top, but 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 come from um, the shop floor, and 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 once you've got uh, a values-led culture, you know you don't need as much process.
2: Yeah, I, I really believe in that, you know. I really believe that writing things down that are truthful and recognisable and also communicating them are vital. The, the pet hate I, I used to have when I started this job, I used to hate when people used to say to someone leaving at 4.30 or 5 o'clock, I used to hate when they said, half day, mm. because firstly it's pernicious, you know, like anyone who's getting up and leaving is already conscious of the fact they're leaving and There's probably a legitimate reason, but it especially impacts on people who've got child care responsibilities. And almost always those people are diligent to the point of ensuring that they make up their time elsewhere, or they're already conscious of the fact they start at 7.30 and no one notices that. And so those things, so I used to make sure people knew that the only cultural no-no was to say half day to someone who was leaving early, because I don't care if someone's going to play football or yoga. You know, normally those people are so desperate to demonstrate that they're doing the four weeks work that they'll make up the time elsewhere. But it's just, you know, it's a it's a casual, it's a boorish, it's a lazy thing for someone to say half day. And writing those things down prevents that.
0: It does, and it means people police each other. So you wouldn't have to be on hand to hear that comment mm. and call that person out. Other colleagues, hopefully, would 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 do that instead. And and. As long as it benefits everybody and everyone's bought into it, that's that's the point about making it uh, inclusive and involving people in defining those values and behaviours. Because well, you've, you've, you've identified them, so now you've, you have to sign up to them. And then as you recruit more people, you're recruiting them into a culture where everybody believes this stuff yeah. and everybody lives this stuff. So, so it's much easier to assimilate new people. Great. Well, I've loved having you on,
2: John. So the decision practice, how long have you been running it?
0: Uh, Well, I I finished my course at the LSE at the end of last year. So it's been sort of a part-time operation until January this year. So I am uh, up and running and uh, open for business.
2: Fantastic. Great. Well, I hope you have a good year this year. Thank you very much, John, for coming on. Really appreciate it. Please send me uh, your comments. You can tweet me at Bruce Daisley or you can add comments on iTunes. Please subscribe on iTunes. iTunes, ask us to say that. And thank you very much. See you next time.